Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Uh, I invite you to turn there and stand when you get there. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of our Lord. I'd like you uh, for a moment to imagine a situation. Um, you're sitting in a, a coffee shop with a Bible out in front of you or maybe sitting across from someone discussing faith. And someone uh, leans over or comes by your table, wherever you're sitting, and they, they uh, ask you a question. They ask you, well, why do you believe uh, Jesus, Jesus is God? Why do you believe the things that you claim to believe? And you answer the question, you uh, kind of tell them why you believe it, what, what you think is compelling about faith. And then that person says, well, that's nice. I'm, it's good, good for you for believing that. But, you know, I, I'm not persuaded by any of that. And then suppose you say, well, let's, let's talk again. Uh, I can get your number. We can meet up. And suppose you meet with this individual a number of times, each time talking about faith, talking about Christ, talking about scripture, things like, why should I trust what the Bible says? Isn't the Bible corrupted? Doesn't the Bible have all kinds of additions and modifications? How can we know that this is really what the church handed down to us? You talk about things like, well, what about this uh, text over here in the New Testament that seems to indicate Jesus isn't God? Or what about this text over here that seems to indicate a contradictory account? And then uh, you continue to talk, and, and one of the sessions you talk about uh, the morality that God demands. Isn't that strange? Isn't that outdated? Isn't that different than what we would see today as right and, and fitting, right? Isn't that a very narrow thing for God to 
uh, command of his people. And then uh, suppose you're wrapping down your time meeting with this person, and then the, the ultimate question comes out, which is, uh, let's suppose all these things are true and coherent and the Bible really does fit together well. Uh, why still should I listen to it? Uh, why should I listen to the morality and the Jesus that's contained in a book and that some people today believe but many people today reject? What's, why, why should I listen to this outdated source of authority? That scenario uh, is probably a very realistic scenario, depending on how long you live in Indianapolis for and go to coffee shops in Indianapolis for, uh, you're going to have something like that happen at some point. And maybe it's not some random, nameless, faceless person that you get to know over time. Perhaps it's someone you know. Perhaps it's someone you have been talking to right now. Perhaps it's someone you, you can intimately picture having this kind of a conversation with them, discussing these kinds of things. And the ultimate question that you get down to is, why should I listen to this book? Why should I listen to your claims about who Jesus is? Why should I listen to what you believe God says about morality or about marriage? Why should I listen? And Luke gives us one way in which Jesus answered that question. And in, in the case of Jesus, it, it's not people who are secular, people who don't believe in the faith. Uh, these are the theologians. These are the scholars. This would actually be more like if you went to a seminary today and you talked to a professor at that seminary and the professor said, why should I believe that Jesus was Christ? Imagine having that conversation. Someone who knows, has studied, knows more than you do. What would you do? Well, this text tells us at least how Jesus approaches the situation and perhaps we can lean in and learn a little bit from him on how do we engage with doubtful skepticism about the faith. So the text uh, breaks out in, in at least two main movements. The first is his interaction with the Pharisees. The second is the parable that he tells in light of the situation that has just transpired. And for the sake of time, we're actually going to be cutting the logic of the text basically in half, because if you'll just glance down briefly at verse 19 of chapter 20, you'll notice the response of the scribes and the Pharisees soon follows the telling of the parable. So next week, we're going to pick up on basically the same themes we lay out this week. Uh, but for the sake of time, we, don't, we just can't cover all of chapter 20 in one go. Uh, I suppose we could, but none of you would be happy afterwards. So, um, so with that, uh, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 20. And we'll see the context that has kind of brewed the situation at hand. So one day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? It doesn't take them 20 coffee interactions with Jesus to ask the really hard question. They know what he's saying. They get what he's about. They get that he's making claims. What they want to know is who says? Why should we listen to what you say as opposed to what we believe about the Old Testament? Why should we believe your line of interpretation? Well, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, if you look just at the uh, previous chapter, verses 45 and 46, you'll see at least one of the reasons the scribes and the chief priests and the elders are upset with Jesus. It's because he goes into the temple, the temple they were supposed to be guarding and shepherding the worship within, and he says this whole thing 
is bankrupt. This whole thing is a sellout. And he purifies it. And so it's likely that that makes them upset. And actually, the text tells us they're looking for a way to kill him, verse 47. They're seeking to destroy him. But that's not the first thing that he's done so far to upset them. In fact, if you look back just a couple verses before then, in verse 38 of chapter 19, you'll remember in the triumphal entry, the people say, blessed is this king, and the scribes and the Pharisees respond saying, he's not worthy of worship. Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying these things. So this conflict between Jesus and the religious elite in uh, Judea, it has been a brewing conversation actually for the whole Gospel of Luke. And so they finally go to him and they ask him the question, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you teach these things? By what authority do you claim these things? Perhaps that's the exact question that you're asking yourself right now about listening and following Christ or not. What authority does God really have to tell me what to do? What authority does Jesus, as opposed to Buddha or as opposed to Muhammad or as opposed to uh, modern philosophy, what authority do these things actually have over my life? Why should I listen to them? The Pharisees ask the question, why should we listen to Jesus? They're knowledgeable. They're rabbis. They're interpreters of the Old Testament. They know the same scriptures Jesus knows. They've observed the times and the seasons. They know that Rome is oppressing them. They know all these things. Their question is not, uh, why does Jesus quote these texts? Their question is, why should we listen to your quotation and your interpretation of these texts? And so Jesus answered them with a question. And this is a great way, if you're engaging in conversations like this, uh, to, to counter. This is a really good way to engage someone who's asking hard questions, difficult questions of faith. Jesus says, I will ask you a question. So I'll ask you a question, you answer my question, I'll answer your question. Fair is fair, we'll be good to go. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And you might say, well, that, that seems like a strange question having nothing to do with the immediate situation. But what Jesus is doing is he's aware of the cultural situation he's in, and he recognizes that he has just put them in a corner. Because all the people that he's teaching when they come to confront him believe that John was a prophet from God. They believe that because, remember, in the, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, John is the one baptizing people. Everyone from all the towns are coming out to him to be baptized to anticipate this coming Messiah who's coming after John to deliver the people. And they all believe that John is the one who is pointing to the one to come after him. And so when Jesus asked the question, tell me, what do you think about John and his ministry? What do you think about John? Do you think he was really sent from God? He's going to make the Pharisees have to choose. Are they going to say what they really think, which is they think that they don't believe John and they don't like John and he really was a thorn in their side until he was killed? Or are they going to cave to their fear of man and say, no, 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 we, we believe in, in John? Because if they say that, then the immediate follow-up question is going to be, why don't you believe what I say then, right? Because if they say they believe John, he's going to ask them, well, why don't you believe me? Because John pointed to me. You see the logic. But if they say we reject John, well, they're going to have all of the people upset with them because all of the people have already received John as a prophet. And so he's put them in a corner. And so they turn, they huddle up with one another, and they say, well, if we say from heaven, right, if we say John did these things authoritatively, he will say, then why do you not believe me? Why do you, why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. You see, their problem with saying no, they don't think John's baptism is from heaven, 
is because they're just scared of the people, right? So we already are seeing the, the issue with the Pharisees. The issue with them is they like the power that comes with the religious positions that they have. It is very possible, in fact, the Gospels paint this picture for us, for religious elite, the learned scholars of a religious community to be completely unconverted. That is an entirely possible thing. In fact, the Gospels tell us about the Pharisees who we often think about them as the villains. I've said this before. We often think about them as the, the kind of like Disney character villains, like they're so evil, everyone should see how evil they are. But the thing is, we don't think about the Pharisees as the people of Jesus' day would have thought of the Pharisees, as the go-to source for reason and truth and sifting of thought. They're like your go-to resource for knowing is this true or is that true. They're publishing all the commentaries. They're the ones who are doing all the interviews. They're the ones you go to when you have a theological question. And so when Jesus stands up against them, uh, this is not a caricature. Right? These people aren't just the evil ones in Jerusalem. They really do hold the sway of the people. And that sway, the sway that they hold over the people, has gotten to their heads. It has, it has made them unable to say what they think, which is that they don't think John is from, from God. And it's also made them blind to, re, to recognizing Jesus because, well, they don't want to accept Jesus because that means they're going to have to bow the knee to somebody. And they like their position of power and authority. It's not all that different in our day. There's many, many churches today, and I mean by that is church buildings, that you could go to and you could observe a service at, where the person standing delivering a teaching or instruction from the front will not believe anything about Jesus. They won't believe that he was God. They might not even believe he was real. They might not even believe that the New Testament is a reliable source of truth. So the, the situation on the ground in Jesus' day is not all that different from something you'll see today. In fact, all of the major theological seminaries, all of the main ones that were established at the founding of our nation, are almost all to a T liberal seminaries. What I mean by that is not politically liberal. What I mean by that is they reject everything that has to do with Jesus. They, for example, Princeton, established by Christians who believed in the divinity of the Son. Uh, that, if you go to Princeton today, there's not a single faculty on that staff who says they believe in Jesus. And yet they're studying the Bible all the time. They've published very academic journals and that stuff. And so it's not all that irrational for us to understand that religious learners, the people who are most learned, could reject the very things which they claim to be the defenders of. If I could give you an illustration, uh, whether you've read the books or watched the movies, uh, and if you haven't, you should do either one or both of those things. Uh, the Lord of the Rings are a wonderful uh, series to depict really truisms about scripture. And one of the characters in Lord of the Rings that, that comes to my mind when I read this text, and the, really the Pharisees in general, is the character of Denethor. Now Denethor, uh, for those of you who are struggling with the names of those characters, it's not coming right to your mind, he is the steward of Gondor. So in the third Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King, we meet this guy who's guarding the city, and his job is to be the temporary steward of the city because there's no king to sit on the throne. And the, the issue, very quickly, that becomes apparent in both the movie and in the books, is that Denethor, regardless of whether a real king shows up or not, he doesn't want to give up the control that he has. He sat on the throne. He's been a good steward. He likes the fact that he can boss people around. He likes the fact that he commands the armies. He doesn't want to give up his position of authority to any king. If you like, he's, he, he's anti the king 
but he wants all the authority that comes with being the one who's supposed to be the rightful steward for the king. And that's the exact thing that's going on with the Pharisees here. They like all the power that comes with being the guardians of the Jewish faith and waiting for their Messiah. And yet they deny the Messiah who's right in their face when he shows up. So these people are unconverted religious leaders leading the faithful Jews and standing then against Jesus. And so their response ultimately when they, when they uh, collude together is, is interesting. They decide they're not going to answer. This is, uh, this is the agnostic response. They say, so they answered, they don't know. <laughs> uh, we don't want to make a claim one way or the other. We're not sure. We're going to keep studying and learning and we'll figure it out at some point. This is the ultimate response of someone who doesn't want to pick a side, doesn't want to be divisive. And Jesus then responds to them, fine, then I'm not telling you either. I won't tell you by what authority I do these things because you won't answer me what you think about John. Now, the reason they ask the question of Jesus, uh, what authority does he have to do these things, is because if Jesus says something at this point like, I am the rightful king, well, they're going to turn around to the Herodians and they're going to say to them, hey, here's this Jewish rebel who claims to be the king of the Jews, and then they're going to turn them over to him over to the Roman government, and they're going to put him to death. So, and, and that's because there's plenty of false messiahs who are leading rebellions in and around the first century AD. The Jewish people are expecting their messiah to come at this time. And so there's been a bunch of people who've led these kinds of revolts. And so the, the, the Pharisees think, well, we can get Rome to do our bidding to put Jesus to death. We can get Rome to kill him. And ultimately, that will solve the problem. So they want him to say something that's incriminating, not in the eyes of the Jewish people, but incriminating in the eyes of the Roman government, so they can get Rome to take care of this Jesus problem for them. And that's why Jesus very wisely refuses to answer their question. Now, this situation where you ask a question uh, in response to hard questions, this is a, a wonderful strategy if you're interacting with someone who has serious doubts about the faith. For instance, if someone asks you the question, what authority, why, by what authority do you have to say that Jesus is Lord and King and commands my life and morality? The immediate question you can ask is, well, what authority do you listen to? What, what authority do you currently follow? Because there, there's an answer to that question, right? If they say, I follow some external authority, you can say, well, why do you listen to that authority as opposed to Jesus? Let's, let's see if these two are comparable in any way. Or if they say, I don't listen to any external authority, I just listen to myself. Well, that's just as self-incriminating, right? And so it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing uh, response you can use uh, to ask a question and see, put the ball in their court to see what they will say in response. They're, basically, Jesus knows there's no good way for them to respond to this question because either way, he wins. And so he has, he's put them in a corner. And having put them in a corner... He's then going to turn around and tell them this parable. And the parable is going to serve, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a parable. It's basically a thinly veiled plot summary of the Old Testament. Um, as, and so everyone, everyone gets what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's a good parable, but if you're a Jew in the first century, this is hardly a story. This is just like him rebuking the Pharisees to their face. So the parable goes like this. There is a man who planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants. And he went into another country for a long while. And when it came time, he sent a servant, a slave, to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this is because he owns the vineyard. So any produce that comes from the vineyard is rightfully a portion of that is the owner's. But the tenants, the people who are stewarding this vineyard, they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. So servant number one goes, 
Servant number one is beaten and sent away with nothing. Then he sent another servant. And they also beat him and treated him shamefully. They're doing worse to the second one. And they sent him also away empty-handed. And then he sent a third, and this one they wounded and cast out. You see the escalating nature with which they treat these servants. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What then shall I do? I will send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, the, the choice of words that Jesus used here, I will send my beloved son. This is, this is Jesus, a, a thinly veiled layer for Jesus to say it this way. Because remember, when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So here the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will hear him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him. And notice, so that the inheritance may be ours. What that means is, this is the only son of the tenant. This is the only son of the owner. Right? If they kill him and they think the inheritance is theirs, that means there's no other sons to pass the inheritance to. So we have a farmer who owns a vineyard. The vineyard is his. He sends his only son to the vineyard to plead with the tenants of the vineyard so that they might listen to him and respond rightly. And they threw him out of the vineyard. They throw the son out and they killed him. Then what will the owner of the vineyard do with them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, just a brief moment before we continue in the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, in the other Gospels, where, where this same text is recorded, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, it's actually the people who interject where verse 16 is, and they answer Jesus' question. They, and they actually say, he should put them to death. Uh, so the people, there's a crowd around Jesus when this is happening. Jesus is having this public discourse with the Pharisees. But in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus just kind of concludes it by saying, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. No doubt exactly what Jesus does say. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now the they is not the crowd. The they is the Pharisees who are being told this. The Pharisees, the chief, the scribes, and the elders. Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, what Jesus is getting at is that the Pharisees, by rejecting the Son, by rejecting Jesus, will be smitten by God. And rightly so. Because it's not that they lack knowledge. That's the, thing, that's the point that the parable makes clear. It's not as though they don't have access to the right information. In fact, the interaction about the baptism of John tells us the exact same thing. It's not as though these people who come to Jesus are just, they're struggling with a couple of verses, they don't know how to put it together, and so they're asking earnestly for truth. It is an obstinate rejection. It's not for lack of knowledge that they don't receive Jesus as the king. And we know that because of the, in the parable, the son isn't the first one to go and tell the tenants they owe rent, that they owe their share of the harvest. What he, the son is the, the last one to go. There's three servants who go before, all with the same message, to say, hey, you owe this vineyard and the stewardship which has been entrusted to it to the rightful owner of the vineyard. Now, I said this is a veiled parable. It's a thinly veiled summary of Israel's history. 
Um, and that's because the vineyard is Israel. And the owners of the vineyard, the tenants, are the religious leaders of Israel who've been trusted with stewardship over the vineyard. And of course, the son is Jesus, and the servants who go to tell the to tenants to repent are the prophets. Now, there's two texts that I would like to look at to show this to you. There's many more that talk about the vineyard, so I will have to content myself with just two. Psalm chapter 80 in your Old Testament. Uh, and this will uh, show you how Israel is the vine, Israel is the vineyard, that's the image. And it's not just the Psalms that use Israel as, a, as an image of a vineyard and a vine, it's actually the prophets that do it, the major and the minor prophets, all speak about Israel as a vineyard. But Psalm chapter 80 and verse 8 is where I'll be reading. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep roots and filled the land. Or it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea and its shoots down to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who will pass by will pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. And then verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish and the, at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So it's very clear that in Psalm 80, the, the vine... And the vineyard very quickly blends into the people saying, we are that vine, please restore us back. And this is a, an English, uh, not an English, it's a Hebrew psalmist who's, who's saying, Lord, we are the vine, we are this vineyard that you planted, and, and so why, why have we been destroyed? This is no doubt written in light of Babylon, in light of Assyria, who's come and who's ravaged the city of Jerusalem, saying, Lord, would you destroy us? Would you restore us with the man of your right hand? And so they're pleased. No, and the reason he quotes Psalm 80 is because the Pharisees know Psalm 80, right? They know their Old Testament. And then there's one more text, and this one is uh, in Jeremiah. And it's Jeremiah chapter 7. We were there last week as well. Just a little while later in Jeremiah 7, there's a thinly veiled uh, quotation that Jesus uses here when he tells the it's particularly the part about the servants who the uh, farmer sends uh, time after time. And so this is Jeremiah chapter 7, and particularly it is verse 25 that I want you to look out for, but I'm going to start reading in verse 22. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this is the command I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you will be my people and walk in all the way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, 
to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. They stiffened their neck, and so they did worse than their fathers. So when I tell you that Jesus is is telling a thinly veiled parable, it's a very thinly veiled parable, right? He says year after year, the the owner of the vineyard sends these servants that these people uh, first beat, then they beat and act shamefully towards, then they beat and wound and send them all away empty-handed. This is the story of the prophets who go to Israel and say, repent, turn, turn back to God, and time after time. So it's not that Israel lacks knowledge, right? That's clearly being established. What's new is that Jesus is saying, and then this farmer sends his son, saying perhaps they will hear the son. And what they do with the son is they kill the son, thinking that once the son is gone, they will have, they will have the inheritance. It will finally be theirs. And so what will the father do when they kill his son? But he will turn on them in his wrath and crush them. And this, by the way, is exactly what will, what will transpire in history. In a matter of days, Jesus will be put to death. And in a matter of years after that, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed because the Jewish people have killed the son. And so what Jesus says here is also interesting when he, when he responds to them after they say, surely not, he looks directly at them and he says, then what is this that is written? And then he quotes from Psalm 118. Now, I won't make you turn there, but we know Psalm 118. It's fresh in our minds because last week I told you the people, when Jesus is coming in on the triumphal entry, are also quoting from Psalm 118. They say, blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. And later in Psalm 118, the king who comes in from the people who they're honoring is the stone that the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Now, in Psalm 118, it appears as though those builders that rejected the cornerstone are external enemies of the Israelites. And so when Jesus says to the Pharisees who reject him, when you reject me, it is the stone that you reject, you the builders reject, that will become the cornerstone. He's saying the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, and the chief priests, they are the enemies of God's people. They are the ones who have cast out the rightful Air. They, are, they are the one who have rejected the chief cornerstone. And then he adds his own interpretation to it. Not quoting from Psalm 118 anymore, but uh, elaborating on Psalm 118. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What he's saying is, if you stumble over me, if you stumble by rejecting me, there is sure judgment to come upon you for the rejection. Now, this is is quite an answer. It's a thinly veiled answer. And part of this answer to the the Pharisees is actually addressing their first question, where they say, by what authority do you do this? And then in the parable, he says what? He says, I'm the son of the guy who owns the vineyard. This is the authority by which I do this. Right? In the parable, it's so obvious that these tenants should just give up. They should repent. They should pay everything they owe to the farmer. They should apologize, and they should just move on with their lives. Right? If you're reading this parable, you're, you're getting the sense that these, these tenants are obstinately rejecting plain reason. They are, it is not for lack of knowledge that they behave the way they do. It's, it's for lack of sense. It is for lack of willpower to obey. It is because they are rebels against the one who owns the vineyard. And that is exactly true of people today. 
And that person who I said, I want to imagine you speaking with and reasoning about them for the faith. I want you to know that in every single one of those interactions that you will ever encounter in your life, it is not for lack of knowledge that people disbelieve God. It is not for lack of information or lack of access to truth that people doubt and reject the things they hear about Jesus. Simply put, it's a lack of willpower. It's an obstinate rejection of plain reason. Romans tells us this, Romans chapter 1, it is not as though people don't have access to truth, it's because they reject what is plainly true from the world. So when we engage with people who are asking questions, it doesn't mean we don't answer questions, it doesn't mean we don't intercede and provide the best reasons and the best explanations and the best access to truth that anyone could have access to. But we have to remember and recognize that people aren't unbelievers because they don't know. People are unbelievers because they are at their core rebellious against the God who is their God. So what that means is it is a spiritual and not an intellectual battle that is being fought. Because what Jesus in his response to the Pharisees is showing is their, their issue with Jesus is not that they don't know about Jesus. It's not that they don't know their Old Testament. They know their Old Testament better than any person today who you go out on the street and talk to and try to reason about God and Jesus. These Pharisees know it better. They know the prophecies. They know the timings. They know the expectations. They get all of that. And they still reject Jesus. So if someone with that access to information can reject the Messiah, you can bet for sure someone today will reject the Messiah with much less knowledge. It's not for lack of knowledge, it's, it's for lack of ability to believe. See, what has to happen in the gospel, Luke makes this clear, is Jesus has to die, he has to resurrect, and then he has to send his Holy Spirit to enable people to see, to open dead hearts, to turn blind eyes, to wake up their consciences so that they can see and perceive. And that happens in the preaching of the gospel. That's the whole book of Acts, right? The preaching of the apostles to the Jewish people, to the Gentile people, is a proclamation of truth, which doesn't actually say anything different than what Jesus says. And yet, with the accompanying of the Holy Spirit, the preached word goes out and converts people. And if you read those sermons, it's not like they're presenting arguments that you won't hear from a pulpit on a Sunday from pastors. Because really, all preaching is is echoing all the same things over and over and over again. But what is clear is that the, the heightened access to knowledge, although it does not convert the Jewish leaders, it does serve as a means of condemnation, additional condemnation upon them. So think this out with me. If the Jewish nation, with all its access to information about the Messiah, all those prophecies, upon their rejection of Christ, if they're going to face this swift punishment, the destruction of the vineyard and the turning over of that vineyard to other uh, tenants, if they're going to be crushed by the cornerstone, well then, we can, it can reason to believe that so too it is for anyone who has access to the knowledge of Christ and rejects him today. Because since the time of the prophets and the apostles, and the Gospels being written, and the Epistles being written, and the New Testament being assembled, and the church going through all the world to preach this truth, 
There are few countries that have had access to the knowledge of the truth as, as the Western world has and that, that America has. And yet, the belief that you see in America is, is very much like the belief you see from the Pharisees here. A Christless faith. You can't have Judaism without a Messiah. You can't have Christianity without Christ. And yet, there are religious systems that can continue to spin long after Christ has left the theology. Long after Christ has left the focus. And, and, and that is not for lack of knowledge that people reject these things. There are plenty of people who know all the same truths about the New Testament and its assembly that still believe in Christ, still believe in the veracity of the New Testament. There are plenty of Bible scholars today who believe in Christ and plenty of Bible scholars today who don't believe in Christ. It's not for lack of knowledge. If it was for lack of knowledge, no one would believe in Christ who's learned a lot. But there's plenty of people who've learned and studied and believe all the same things that you in the pews today know, having not studied at a PhD level in archaeology or something like that. It's not for lack of knowledge. It's never for lack of knowledge. It's important that we keep that in mind. Because when you and I reason with people in the world, and even as we reason with our own hearts, day in and day out, week in and week out, preaching the truth of God's word to us, preaching it to other believers in the church, preaching it to those who we're not sure where they're standing before the Lord, we recognize that it is not just a matter of truth going into the ears, sounding off the eardrums, passing through the auditory nerves, and registering in the brain. That's not all it takes. It takes God's divine movement in a human heart to enable them to obey, to enable them to hear, to enable them to respond. Now, the good news is if you're a Christian, God has promised you that he's actually made your heart supple to respond. Now, that does not mean that you're now doing it on your own strength, always responding. It actually means you're still constantly tied to the Holy Spirit to respond at all points in time. But what it does mean is when you're reasoning with anyone in the world about faith, there is a spiritual willpower component to this that you simply have no control over. And so what that should leave you to conclude is that my intellectual knowledge, my presentation of the truth is, I would say, good and maybe even necessary, but not sufficient. God's movement in that person's heart is necessary and sufficient. And so we should pray, not, even, not only before we speak to someone like that, but also after, that the seeds of the gospel which have been presented would land in their hearts and sow wonderful fruit. You should pray the same thing for Christians in the church around you as well, that the seeds of the gospel which have been planted in their heart, the deposit which has been given to them, would grow bountifully, wonderful, rich, and glorious fruit for the kingdom. So do you do that? for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, praying for them and interceding on their behalf so that they might hear the word of the Lord and obey it. Do you pray that for your family? Do you pray that for your wife or wives? Do you pray that for your husband? Do you pray that for the person you've been meeting with for weeks on end, months on end, years on end, speaking to them about the truths of the faith? Prayer is a necessary component. The Holy Spirit is a necessary component of our reasoning out the faith with people. Because what's utterly true, what Luke, what Luke lands the plane on for us, 
is that intellectual knowledge is simply not sufficient. Now, what's amazing about this is that Jesus is worth listening to, and Luke has established that not here in chapter 20. He's established that throughout his gospel. He's established that this is the son of David, the heir to the throne, the rightful king, the owner of the vineyard son. He is the one who is coming rightfully to purify the temple, to teach authoritatively, to reveal truth. And so you should listen to him. If you're a, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you don't simply believe in the Old Testament because it still exists and it's around. You believe in the Old Testament because Jesus has come and said, the Old Testament authoritatively points to me. And the New Testament echoes all of that truth as well. Jesus is the rightful interpreter of the Old Testament. And the reason I say that is because there are many, many places you can go today, many Orthodox Jewish schools, rabbinic Judaism that you could go to, that will uninterpret the Old Testament the way Jesus interprets it, the way the apostles interpret it, and will offer alternative lanes and avenues by which to understand the meaning of the Old Testament. What I'm not telling you is that Jesus is the only interpreter of the Old Testament. What I am telling you is that he's the only authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. And that's because he resurrects from the grave. No one else who interprets the Old Testament resurrects from the dead. No one else who interprets the Old Testament is crucified for what they say and then comes back again three days later and says, I told you. Jesus does all of those things. And it is with that that we can have confidence in his interpretation. The son would not have been raised from the grave if he was a false teacher. The son would not have come back from the dead if he was a false messiah. But it is because he is a true messiah that he is resurrected, and therefore it, it checks the box on all of his teaching thereafter. So what should we conclude? Having read Luke 20, at least the first half of the chapter, we can conclude that the conflict is high, the tensions are raised, the Pharisees doubt, and we should still continue to listen to Jesus even with all of the adversity. Because what's not new under the sun is agnostic doubts, skeptical doubts about the claims of Jesus. Jesus lives in a day where there are skeptical and agnostic doubts about who he is and what he comes to do. And he proves all of them wrong, as Luke will go to show us. So what you can conclude today, Christian, is you should listen to Jesus' teaching as authoritative teaching for your life. And not just the theological truths, like he's the cornerstone, which is a wonderful truth, but also the hard truths, like he is the Lord of your life who commands your ways. He calls you to repentance. He calls you to confession of sin and a whole host of other things that he will go on to teach us about. That's what we can conclude. Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. And what, what these Pharisees are, they're usurpers of the throne. They're unrightful stewards who have said, we don't want anything to do with the king by whose authority we actually own this vineyard to begin with. Just because someone's educated, well-learned, a scholar, does not in any way, shape, or form make them a Christian. There are many today who are in that exact state, as the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. What it means is that they're usurpers of the throne. Lawless, against the Lord, against the king, usurpers. And how you spot a usurper is that they have rejected the rightful authority, the son himself, who comes as the heir to the throne. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, your truth is vital for our lives. It's not trapped in some ancient place far away from here from long ago. 
But Lord, it is vibrant to teach us about truths which we can take tomorrow into our lives, today to our hearts and to apply them. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your Son. We thank you for sending us the prophets of old. We thank you for sending us your Son himself to reveal truth to us. And Lord, thank you for the blessing of the apostles and their teaching and the New Testament and its writing and for all of the faithful preachers and pastors and Christians throughout the centuries who have deposited the faith which they were entrusted with and passed it along. Lord, it is a wonderful work of your providence to have the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that you have preserved for us to hear even today. Lord, what a glorious blessing, what a glorious truth that is. We thank you and we praise your name. Amen.